because people are still filtering in. Uh, here's my problem with Amos chapter 4. Um, the problem is it's hard to know when to stop reading. Um, you're aware that these, uh, these headings that we have in some of our translations weren't original. Um, so these things that show up in boldface to, to give you landmarks as to where you are, they're not original. Uh, they were added later. In fact, the chapter divisions themselves and the verses were added uh, in the Middle Ages. And so uh, sometimes uh, the, the chapters can obscure, and we try to read with an open mind as to the flow of the text. And this is one that if you wanted to just keep on reading to the end of chapter 6, you could do that probably. Uh, but I, I think there is, uh, there's a parallel between the beginning of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And so we're going to read to verse 9 of chapter 5. We're going to start in Amos chapter 4 today. Uh, we're going to read to Amos chapter 5, verse 9. We might not uh, discuss all of it, might not capture all of it, and so that's okay. We can, uh, we can either move on or come back to it next week if we need to. Um, but uh, that's going to be the lay of the land this morning. And let me open our time together in prayer. O oh, gracious and righteous and glorious Lord, we thank you for the blessing of this day. We thank you for uh, the Lord's Day when your people gather together uh, to hear from you and to uh, rejoice in the mercy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for your discipline and, uh, and your work in the lives of your people, even when we go astray, even when your people in Israel went astray. Uh, you came in faithfulness and in holiness, and you declared by your uh, covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh, you are the one who comes uh, to hold people accountable to your covenant promises and uh, to enact covenant curses. Lord, we thank you that all of our sin and all of our curses have been laid on Christ, and we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to uh, continue to grow in holiness. We pray that you would give us hearts to rejoice in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see him, even here in Amos, uh, as all the scriptures speak of him. Help us to know more of our Savior this morning. And we pray also for those who are still on their way, who are battling through the snow. We pray that you would keep them safe and, uh, and deliver them here uh, so that we could gather together so that our joy may be complete, uh, that we would speak together of Christ today and help us uh, to worship and to rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, just lay the land uh, a little bit before we get going. Um, Amos chapter 4. We've seen so far the Lord proclaiming judgment. Uh, Amos is very much uh, a prophet of judgment. There are very, very brief glimpses where uh, almost like uh, a whale uh, breaching, he comes up for air and, and redemption, but the vast majority of Amos is in the depths of judgment. We've seen that, and we saw that in the first chapters, this, this uh, ever-tightening noose around the, uh, the people uh, of Israel. And, uh, and the Lord brought, we, we read in the previous chapter, the Lord was bringing his fatherly discipline to his covenant people. He began in chapter 3 by saying, because you are mine, uh, because I have known you, because I have chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth, therefore uh, I will come against you. And we've seen that. The Lord is coming. Uh, their military strongholds, their false worship, their worldly possessions are all powerless to stay the hand of the Lord. And in this section, the Lord will swear by himself. We'll see that. He uh, he swore by his, his covenant um, commitment to them. Uh, in the previous chapter, he swears by his holiness. Uh, here in this chapter, verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Uh, and then we will see it as well at the end where the Lord declares his name. 
in the end, verse 13, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And so the entire chapter is framed by who God is and what the sin of his people says about uh, who God is and the way that they have gone astray from his character, astray from his holiness, uh, and astray from, uh, from his identity as uh, their identity as, as his people. Uh, and so some of the things that we're going to see today, um, he, he opens with this great picture of the cows of Bashan, uh, one of the most recognizable uh, phrases from Amos. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but the underlying error of Israel here uh, is in seeking their own pleasure, uh, and that will be exposed. And that, that happens not just uh, in their oppression of the poor and, and in their bodily indulgence, but also in, uh, in the false shrines that they've set up in their worship. Uh, the Lord is declaring that he's the one who ought to be worshipped. And uh, their religious forms are multiplying, uh, but really for the, self, the sake of self-satisfaction. They're refusing to turn to the Lord. And then the end uh, of this chapter will highlight the dual aspect of the holy character of God. Uh, but we're going to read, as I mentioned, um, into the beginning of chapter 5 because there is, uh, there's a parallel uh, that we'll see with this idea of going to Bethel, going to Gilgal, and refusing to turn to the Lord, that's in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, the Lord will turn it, uh, and he'll say, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Gilgal, don't go to, to Beersheba, but come back to me, return to the Lord. And so the Lord, even um, in giving this, uh, this judgment call to his people, uh, is issuing a summons to repentance, and, uh, and a promise of what will happen when the people come back to him. Hey, Maddie. Uh, so let's start reading in, uh, in Amos chapter 4 and through um, chapter 5, verse 9. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you, and they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithe every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you, where there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city, and one field would have rain, and the field in which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds, 
who declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness, who treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns deep darkness into morning and darkness into day and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Well, thus far the reading of God's word. May he uh, multiply its blessing to us as we read it and, uh, and consider it this morning. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, you could, you could just keep going with that final thought. The Lord is coming uh, finally almost to call his people, almost to be more tender with them. Uh, but the passage that we read doesn't begin uh, with tenderness. Uh, it begins with this call, you cows of Bashan. Uh, again, one of, the, one of the most recognizable images from the book uh, of Amos. But how does uh, this, this image... Um, especially in verses 1 through 3, there, there is a condemnation uh, of the sins, and then there is a corresponding judgment, and we see some correlation between these things. Um, what is especially egregious about the sins of Israel that we're seeing in this first chapter, and how do some of these uh, sins serve as an indicator of the whole people? What do you see uh, that would be especially egregious in their sins in this, this first little section? So who, who is this talking about, do you think? The cows of Bashan. Rob is smiling in the back. It's got to be women. Oh, it, really, it is, it is. Uh, this idea, who say to your husbands, and the Hebrew behind it is, uh, is this strange um, feminine form of cows. Um, and so it, it really is, he's, he's calling out the women of Israel. And so what uh, are the... Uh, the implications, what is he saying about them? Cow probably wouldn't have the same implication that it would today if you called a woman a cow. That would just be uh, an insult. It, it is uh, a judgment and an insult here, um, but cows of Bashan were uh, sort of uh, the revered uh, upper echelon of livestock. Um, imagine this is Israel's version of Kobe beef, right? So you, you've seen those Japanese cows and, uh, and the uh, and the keepers of those cows go out every day, and they give them massages, and they feed them beer, and they, uh, they fatten them up, and, you know, it sells for like $80 a pound, or whatever, whatever Kobe beef sells for. Uh, cows of Bashan were, were Israel's version. They were the, the sleek, fat, these were uh, the upper crust of livestock. And he's, he's relating the women in Israel to, to these cows of Bashan. So what is he saying about them? What is what is particularly terrible about their kind of sin? 
They're well-fed and they're wealthy, absolutely. So there's that parallel. Um, they, they have all the best things. Uh, and, uh, you know, the other idea here, the, the, uh, the cows of Bashan on the mountains of Samaria. Uh, sometimes when you hear of, of some of the other mountains, in fact, that, uh, that opening phrase in Amos that uh, Scott asked me about a while ago, uh, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. That was in Amos chapter 1, verse 2. Um, and Scott asked, you know, that seems strange. Normally it's the mountains that are quaking um, and the fields that are withering, but here it's, it's changed. Well, because up in, in the northern reaches, there was you know, a lot of hill country that was very fertile. And so all sorts of just, just wild vegetation uh, on the top of Carmel and some of these mountains of Samaria. Uh, and, and he's saying you, you've got the best uh, of the best, in the best of the land, and you've got everything uh, that you could imagine. You cows of Bashan on the hills of Samaria. So where does it lead? Nope. And oppressing the poor. Absolutely. Sure. And, and this is what we need to keep in mind, because if we were to take this and translate it back or, or, or compare it back to that passage in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where God was telling about covenant blessings and covenant curses, he very explicitly told his people, if you follow me, I will make you abundant. I will make your storehouses overflow. I will give you all that you need. You won't have to want for anything because you'll be my people in my promised land, and it will go well with you. Um, and so in, in this section, it's not just that they're wealthy. Wealth in the Bible is not a bad thing. It's not uh, the goal that we should all strive for. Uh, but it is a terrible thing when wealth eclipses our treatment of others. And our desire for wealth uh, leads us to treat others with contempt and oppression, uh, to maintain our wealth or to gain our wealth on the backs of the poor. And this is what he's talking about. Not just that these people were wealthy, uh, but that they were wealthy at the, at the expense of those who had almost nothing. It's oppression all over again. What else do you see about them and their activity, the things that they do? Who do these women make demands of? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And I think we're, we're supposed to see that. Um, there, there is a subtle irony here um, in these well-fed cows demanding of um, their husbands. Actually, there, there is a, a delicious little wordplay uh, between verse 1 and 2. The word for husbands, you have the key, King James? New King James. What does it say in the New King? Okay. There's a footnote there, I think. Anybody else, King James? 
masters, the word is lords. Uh, you say to your lords, bring that we may drink. Uh, you, have, you have masters, you have lords over you, and you make demands of them. Um, and the demands are all about fulfilling what we want um, and subverting this, this gender role, we could say, even between husbands and wives. And I think that is uh, the intention here. The, the modern translations have, have given us husbands, and that's what's happening, that they're treating their, uh, their lords in the household, the men of the household, as lackeys, uh, as servants, uh, simply to fulfill their whims. And there is a juxtaposition between lords in verse 2, or lords in verse 1, and the Lord in verse 2. Here are these women, and they're saying, just bring that we may drink. That's all we want. We just want to be uh, fat and happy, and we, we want to just enjoy the pleasures of the world. And so, husband, uh, you just take care of me. And the Lord is speaking to them. They don't speak to the Lord God, uh, but the Lord speaks to them, and he swears. And so there is this, uh, you know, they speak to their lords, but the actual Lord speaks to them. Uh, and it is not a good message. Okay, so, so there's a parallel then uh, with, with this imagery in verses 2 and 3. Um, what is about to come upon the people? Take you away with hooks. What is that envisioning? Cindy? Absolutely, yeah. And, and some of the translations, there are two words for hooks here. One is fish hooks. Um, you know, you, you draw a fish out of, uh, out of the water and, and up onto the land, and you bring them to their destruction. The other one uh, could be translated meat hooks. Um, here are these cows of Bashan that are really just fattening themselves for the slaughter. That's all they're doing, uh, like the Kobe beef. And they're getting those massages, and they think it's great, um, but judgment is coming. And, uh, and this is what the Lord is saying to them. And, and this actually, you know, it seems like this, this visionary image here of judgment, this taking away with hooks and fish hooks. Um, later, uh, Israel was destroyed in 722 by the Assyrian army. And you can find reliefs in Assyrian uh, temples and things like that, uh, and, and uh, stone carvings, uh, lauding their, their military prowess. And one of the things that they would do is they would come into a place and they would literally lead the people away with hooks in their noses. Uh, so they would, like a cow with a ring, and they'd put a rope through them. Uh, and there was a, an Assyrian king who boasted that he conquered 80 different kings and put ropes in their noses. That's what he did to them, uh, to subjugate them. And this is really what's going to happen, this idea. Um, Every one of you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You're in this secure city, and normally to get out through the city, you've got you've to make your way through the city, and you've got to go uh, to the gate. But the city's going to be so terribly destroyed that you can just... You can just go right out, right out into the wilderness, um, into Harmon. Nobody really knows uh, where Harmon is or, or what that might be referring to. But this idea that destruction is coming. Uh, here are these people who are oppressing the poor, making themselves rich and fat uh, on the backs of, of the poor. And the Lord says um, that he is going to bring them into uh, judgment and destruction. Um, all right, uh, verses 4 and 5. Uh, how is the Lord using sarcasm here? <laughs> and, uh, and what is he saying about their worship? What do you see? Frank? It does, indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, you've been teaching another class, so we won't fault you. Uh, but this has shown up several times already in, in Amos, 
um, where he is drawing attention to Bethel and also to Gilgal. And the reason is that those were two of the shrine sites that were set up in the northern kingdom to keep the people from going back to Jerusalem. Now, the, the, um, the uh, sort of interplay here, when you, when you compare what Bethel has become with what Bethel was, is where the real sadness comes into play. It was named Bethel, uh, and it was named Bethel by Jacob, uh, as he went out of the land, he had, uh, he had gotten into the ire of his brother, uh, and his brother wanted to kill him, and now he's fleeing to the land of, of Laban to go and work with him. Uh, and he comes upon Bethel, and the Lord appears, and he says, I will call this Bethel, the house of God, because the Lord is in this place. And, and that was what Bethel was known as. It was the house of God, where God dwells among his people. That was where uh, he saw the... the sign of uh, the angels ascending and descending from heaven uh, down to Bethel, and it was this great place that, that the Israelites loved for its history, but it became this place where they still called it the house of God, but they used it for idolatry, and they used it for wicked purposes, and likewise uh, with Gilgal, and so we're seeing that they're, they're coming into Bethel, the house of God, they're coming into Gilgal, uh, and they are engaging in worship. But all the worship that they think that they are giving is really just transgressing, and it is being multiplied. And there is this, there's this sarcastic sort of, yeah, this is what you love to do. Come and worship. This is what you fill your days with. So what we're dealing with uh, is this incredible hypocrisy. Now, I, I found it very hard not to, not to correlate um, what we're seeing here uh, with what we're going to be looking at in Luke today as Jesus uh, engages with the Pharisees over the issue of the Sabbath, who love the Sabbath and want to protect the Sabbath, and yet they're not really keeping the Sabbath at all, and they're, they're worshiping falsely because they've missed the whole point of it. Well, here are these people. We've, we've got this decadence and this oppression of the poor, and it's not because they're this irreligious, sort of outright pagan, uh, you know, atheistic culture their lives are filled with worship, but their lives are filled with the wrong kind of worship. And so they're going and they're multiplying transgression, and every sacrifice that they offer is another sin, and everything that they do is digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper into their transgression. So what do you notice? Sorry, go ahead, Frank. Yeah, that's, that would be another way to put it, yeah. Uh, so it's idolatry. It's not real worship. They think it is. Uh, they've got rituals. They've got observances. That's a good way to put it. Uh, and they've got all these rites. Um, and in fact, uh, they're being multiplied over and over and over again. So the tithe uh, was meant to be paid every three years. And what does Amos say? Bring your tithe every three days. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the other one, the sacrifices... Uh, every morning, the word for the sacrifices is um, actually tied to an Old Testament rite that was to be done once a year. Um, and so you've got these sacrifices that are to be done once a year. You've got this tithe to be paid every three years. And they are just multiplying observances and rituals. Uh, it's like um, Isaiah chapter 1. Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Uh, and they're just multiplying observances, but there's no real worship in it. Now, we're talking about a lot of uh, sacrifices here in verses 4 and 5. Do you notice any sacrifices that are missing? 
This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but there is one big, glaring omission here. Excuse me, Cindy? A sin offering. No mention at all of sacrifice for sin. Um, th there's no guilt offering. There's no sin offering. There's a thanksgiving offering. Uh, there's a tithe. Uh, there's a free will offering, uh, which, by the way, shouldn't be published. Should be a free will offering. Uh, not, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, not, uh, not a mandated giver. Um, so he's got the tithe for what you ought to give, but then you could go above and beyond that. And, and it wasn't meant to be twisting the arm, but here they are publishing. Not only uh, calling other people to, here's what you should give for your free will, but here's what I gave for my free will offering. And I bet you can't top that. And there, there's a sort of self-satisfaction, but there's no mention of sin at all. Uh, no mention that they are a guilty people before the Lord in need of, uh, of atonement. Here's how James Montgomery Boyce puts it. He says, any religious practice without a sense of sin and a need for atonement for sin and forgiveness from God is hypocrisy and an offense both to God and man. Uh, this idea here that there is nothing uh, of sin and in fact their, their worship, quote unquote, their worship, their idolatry has become sin itself. Okay. Yeah, Brian. And, and they want to celebrate. Sure. Absolutely. Right, right. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, heard, um, I heard a story a while ago. There is this, you know, people do weird things. Um, there, there is this growing uh, movement uh, of atheistic churches. So there are people who have come out of a church background, who love the tradition, who love the ritual, who love all the things that go along with a church. You get together with other people and you sing songs and you feel happy when you sing songs. We give uh, to good purposes and, and charity and things like that. But they want to get rid of the whole God thing. And so there's a movement of, you know, they get together Sunday mornings and they have an atheistic church. Well, a lot of the, the gatherings in New England aren't very far uh, from that, right? Uh, we, we've, yeah, it sounds Unitarian, um, but, uh, but just, uh, you know, this, this atheistic sort of thing, and, and it's, it's done simply for what man can get out of it. And this is exactly what Amos is talking about. It's so you love to do. This is what you love. You love to bring your offerings because it makes you feel good, but there's no understanding that you are a people who stand under the judgment of God, and he calls sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness, and he calls men to account. Uh, and, and exactly what you're talking about, these uh, open and affirming churches that, that want to come in and say, well, we, we just want to celebrate, um, and, and we want to affirm whatever you believe, because it's not really about having a relationship with an omnipotent Lord and, and the God and the creator of all things, but it's about just expressing yourself, and that's what, what false worship is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
absolutely. And, and on lots of different levels, we could, we could multiply that same argument. Um, but but the, the core of it comes down to, you know, um, doctrine is, is not popular. Uh, people don't want to know any, you know, people don't want to know what you believe, they just want to know what you're up to. Um, but, but Christianity um, is, is really about uh, convincing us that the doctrine matters, the truth of what we're talking about here. I mean, even that, that argument that you're making that we're thinking about eternity. Um, think about the end of, uh, of 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul goes on this tangent about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. It happened. It's historical. It's verifiable. It, it is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. And he gets to the end, and his summary is, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in him your work is not in vain. And the subtext is, if the resurrection is not true, if this doctrinal freight that we, we proclaim is not true, your work is in vain. And it, and it all falls apart. What's that? And we are most to be pitied, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a great parallel. What you're seeing uh, in our culture, what you're seeing here in Amos, uh, is, is a group of people who say, we really like these rituals, and we like the structure, but we don't like the doctrine, and can't we just, can't we just separate those two? And the biblical answer is, no, you can't. Uh, you absolutely can't. I'm getting uh, a laugh from Kathy, who, um, who picked on me for my sound effects last week. Kachuk, 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 kachuk. Um, so I'm going to try and keep those to a minimum. Chris, I've seen you patiently waiting with your hand up back there.
Uh, that's a good summary, Chris, and a, a solid reminder uh, of what we are all aware of, uh, the incredible propensity for, uh, for worship to devolve into something less uh, than God-honoring biblical worship. Um, why are you Presbyterians so fastidious about the regulative principle? Come on. Uh, well, we're fastidious about the regulative principle because we believe that it, it's an ordinance of, of God, a way of interpreting what God has given us that is eminently helpful because it keeps us from going in the way of our own desires, uh, from thinking that we are uh, wiser than God, that we can say, you know what, I'm not crazy about doing this in worship. Um, you know, that, that pastoral prayer uh, gets kind of long, and so let's trade that for an interpretive dance. That's an extreme example, um, but you, you see other, and we went through this last year when we were talking about worship, but you see other churches uh, that have decided, well, we don't really need to hear God's word, um, and so let's get rid of the sermon, and sermons take different forms, and you know, there, there's no biblically mandated, it has to be three points and 45 minutes long. I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that, uh, but but to say, well, you know, the, the important thing is not that we hear from God, and so let's, let's have a video series, or let, let's do something else in that space, uh, that, you know, it will draw in more people. And it really comes down to pragmatism. It comes down to what do people want? What will get people in our church, and what will keep people in our church, and keep them happy, because worship then becomes about what you love to do. That's what he's telling uh, the Israelites. Go on, do these things. And it's this, it's this sarcasm. They think they're doing so well because they love to do this. They feel good when they leave their temples and their shrines. And if their worship looks like it did uh, at the end of, of chapter 2, um, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned and they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. No wonder they love to do this sort of thing. That's the sort of thing they convince themselves this was good worship. Because it, it suits what we like. It suits the mores of our culture. Uh, and it devolves into something that it never should have been. Good. All right, let, let's keep moving. Uh, we've got this uh, large section, beginning in verse 6 and going through verse 11, uh, that has this, uh, this refrain at the end of it. Uh, Yet you did not return to me. Um, and, and there are several things being, being shown here, uh, and we see some of the ways um, Ironsides, uh, Harry Ironsides calls this uh, the various means whereby the Lord has been speaking to them. Uh, the Lord spoke to them uh, through prophets, which we have seen already in an earlier chapter. Um, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, I raised up some of your sons for prophets, some of your young men for Nazarites. Uh, verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. You commanded the prophets, saying you shall not prophesy. So the Lord has been speaking to them uh, with the voice of the prophets, but he's been speaking to them in lots of other ways. What are some of the ways the Lord has been speaking to them? And, uh, and what does this tell us uh, about um, how God values repentance? What he is willing to do with and to his people to bring them to this point of return to me. That's his goal. Over and over again, he's exposing, he's, he's speaking to them, but he's exposing their sin of stubbornness. Now, this is the classical sin that you see in the Old Testament uh, that shows up in a handful of places, but it's, it's always theologically loaded. You stiff-necked people. You always go astray, says Stephen. He takes it 
uh, to the nth degree. You always go astray. You are stiff-necked just like your fathers uh, and just like them before them that refused to listen to the Lord. You did not return to me. And this is what the Lord is, is after. He says, I want you to return to me. And so how, how much value does the Lord place on that? What is he willing to do with his people in order to draw them to this point of repentance? Guilt? Kill them, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he uh, sends pestilence. He killed your young men with the sword. Okay, um, now, where's the, where's the value system there? And, and trust me, I'm, you know, sarcastically almost playing the devil's advocate here. Where's the value system if the Lord wants repentance, but he's willing to kill the people? Right, well, so, so what is the Lord doing? Yeah, he is, uh, he's maintaining his holiness. We saw that in the beginning. The Lord has sworn by his holiness. What is God's holiness, by the way? Himself. It's his character. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. This is, this is who he is. Uh, he, he swears in Psalm 89. He says, I've sworn by my holiness uh, to do good to David. It's, it's his covenant-keeping loyalty because it's who he is. It's his steadfastness of his character. And so he's maintaining who he is, and at the end, he is the, the Lord, Yahweh. We see over and over again um, in, in verse 6, in verse 8, uh, in verse 9, every time he says, yet you did not return to me, declares who? Well, declares Yahweh, the one who is, uh, the one who is what he will be, and the one who maintains covenant steadfast love forever. And it re recalls uh, that uh, section in Exodus chapter 36, where the Lord descends to Moses and he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, uh, gracious and merciful, uh, a God abounding in steadfast love and mercy, yet by no means will clear the guilty, publish, uh, punishing transgression to the third and the fourth generation, but keeping steadfast love for generations for those who love him. This is the covenant God, the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, and so he is, he is keeping his promise. What else is he doing? Yeah, and you, you fat cows of Bashan on the mountains of Samaria, what did I give you? I gave you cleanness of teeth, not toothbrushes. I gave you famine. There's nothing to eat. Uh, and, uh, and you and your opulence are wasting away. Um, and he's, he's demolishing their idols. What are the things that they trust in? Notice how much of this is absolute ruin for an agricultural society. There's famine and drought and mildew, and blight, and locusts, and all of these things, and he compares them to Egypt. Remember what the servants of Pharaoh come to him uh, around the seventh or eighth plague. Can't you see that Egypt is ruined? <laughs> so, 
don't you understand? Why will you still be stiff-necked? Why will you harden your heart against the Lord? Why don't you just turn and give up? Because the Lord is going to continue to demolish all these things that you trust in until you return to him. That's what the Lord is saying to them. Utter ruin for, for Israel, even his people. So how can God do this? I mean, complete destruction. How is it that God can say, what I want is for you to return to me, and if you will not return to me, I will kill your young men. I will send blight and mildew. mildew. Um, and, and what is the Lord doing? What is his goal? Absolutely. So, so um, the Lord is, is uh, establishing his value judgment. What is more important? Is it an eternity with him, or is it uh, a temporary time in the world and the things that you can enjoy? Bill, uh, you know, this is a temporary place. We're just passing through. God is playing the long game with his people. And in fact, he's not even just playing the long game with individuals but with his people collectively. And he is willing to punish the children who have gone astray in order that the others will look at that and say, this is the Lord that we're dealing with here. This is God who is holy. This is God who will keep his covenant promises and his covenant curses. And he is upholding his name. It is more important uh, to the Lord that you know his holiness than that you enjoy your life. Are we aware of that? <laughs> we tend uh, to forget that very quickly. It is more important to the Lord that you understand his holiness and that you worship him in spirit and in truth than that you have a good time in the world. Because the, the world, is, is, as we see it, is passing away. Uh, and it is a temporary thing. And the Lord uh, tells us in the New Testament, set your eyes uh, on the heavenly things, the invisible things where Christ is, where your life is hid with God in Christ, and wait to receive that inheritance that is coming uh, and, and doesn't come here. And I think we have a problem uh, in our own culture because our own culture looks a lot like northern Israel at this time. Uh, that we have so many enjoyable things in the world uh, that it is easy to forget that those enjoyable things are not the point of it all. Bill? Yeah, that, that's good. Um, that's a good uh, transition. Um, and we'll probably end up uh, closing here. Um, yes. Yeah.
Notice the way that he compares them to Egypt, and he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He compares them to Egypt, that, that quintessential oppressor of God's people, the enslavers of God's people for 430 years. And he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, who refused to listen to the Lord and to turn, even though the angels were sent and the men were blinded and the city was destroyed. And you get even Lot had to be carried out by the hand, had to be led by the hand, and his sons-in-law are saying, no, I, I don't think it'll be too bad. I think it'll be all right. Yeah, we'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And here are all these men stuck with blindness outside of the wall of, of, of our house. And no, it'll probably be okay. No, it won't. And don't turn back and don't, don't even turn around and look uh, because that's where oppression is. Um, and, and even, you know, there is this, there's this trajectory for Lot getting closer to Sodom and Gomorrah. He pitched his tent here. And he, was, uh, he moved in. He's sitting at the gate. He is, he is uh, it's sort of the, the frog in the water problem. And the, the heat is being turned up little and little. And he doesn't realize the culture that he's in and how oppressive it is uh, to, to real, true biblical holiness. And he's almost become a part of it. And it's only by God's grace that he brings them out. He, he brings them out from oppression in Egypt, from oppression here, from oppression uh, socially. And he's willing uh, to lay heavy burdens on his people in order that we would see the seriousness of not returning to the Lord. Yeah, good. So here's, here's the transition. Um, so you've probably heard uh, the distortion of Scripture that says, God will not give you more than you can handle. Now, there is a verse that sounds a lot like that. Uh, it's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Um, and, and I think this is true in the sense of, of temptations and the way the Holy Spirit works in the lives of God's people. Um, but sometimes this phrase is used as a sort of, life will be okay because God won't give me more than I can handle. Hogwash. Um, what we're saying is that the way the Lord works in the lives of his people, at least in Israel through Amos, is he gives them way more than they can handle. In fact, he demolishes everything that they think they can handle on their own in order that they would turn to the one who is able to handle it. This is part of God's MO. He shows us what we are unable to do for ourselves. I have a, a quote that I want to uh, share with you. If you don't have a copy of this book, let me know. Uh, every household needs it. It's the Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life uh, by John Calvin. Um, and it's actually a section out of his institutes where he gets intensely practical, uh, just talking about what the Christian life is, is supposed to be. And, uh, and he's got this section in the middle dealing with cross-bearing um, and what it is for us to follow the Lord in bearing our cross. Um, and, and this is a section where he's trying to convince us that the cross makes us humble. So here's what Calvin says. Now, our Lord was not compelled to bear the cross except to show and prove his obedience to his Father. But there are many reasons why we should live under a continual cross. First, whereas we are naturally prone to attribute everything to our human flesh, unless we have, as it were, object lessons of our stupidity, we easily form an exaggerated notion of our strength. I like that. Unless we have object lessons of our stupidity, we easily form an exaggerated notion of our strength. And we take for granted that whatever hardships may happen, we will remain invincible. 
And so we become puffed up with foolish, vain, and carnal consonants, which arouses us to become haughty and proud toward God, as if our own power would be sufficient without his grace. This vanity he cannot better repress than by proving to us from experience not only our folly, but also our extreme frailty. Therefore, he afflicts us with humiliation or poverty or loss of relatives or disease or other calamities. And then because we are unable to bear them, we are soon buried under them. And so being humbled, we learn to call upon his strength, which alone makes us stand up under such a load of affliction. If you don't have this book, you need to get it, let me know. If you don't have it, I'll get you a copy. Um, just a, a wonderful uh, application of so many aspects of the Christian life. But we think he's right. Uh, is that what is the Lord doing? Well, what was he doing in, in Amon, in, in Israel? He was sending famine and blight and mildew and sword and pestilence and all of these things. And the point was, aren't you ready to return to me yet? Aren't you ready to, to cry out and say, Mercy. Not, you know, you've, you've bested me, but I need your mercy. I need you to work in my life because I can't, I can't do it for myself. This is the same thing that we find uh, in the New Testament uh, in Hebrews. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. There's the point. Why does God discipline us? Not so that you would enjoy life as it is uh, in all of your possessions. The Lord disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's the long game. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Uh, we are beyond time. Uh, so I think that's a, a good place uh, to end with this exhortation. Don't be like Israel. The New Testament tells us that these things are recorded for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Consider your affliction. We may not always be able to connect. Here's this affliction. Here's this sickness. Here's this calamity in my life. And we may not be able to connect the dots all the way back to one particular sin. Oh, yes, I haven't, I haven't confessed this yet. But all of our afflictions ought to lay us beneath the hand of God, ought to humble us, to realize how insufficient we are for the things that we need in our lives and the things that we need for eternity. The Lord is working in his people to share in his holiness, and that's what he does through affliction. He, he does it other ways, too. He, he does it uh, through, uh, through blessing uh, often, but one of the important ways that he does is, is through affliction, and we can be thankful that the Lord does that and that he's faithful to do that. Let's pray. Oh, glorious Lord, we began uh, praying that you would help us to see Christ and that you would help us to know more of you. We pray that we would have known more of your ways today, the way that you work in our lives. We pray that you would humble us under affliction. We pray that you would show us more of your character and more of your holiness. We pray that you would expose those areas of life that we are tempted to hide and to run into simply what feels good and uh, what is uh, pleasing to us or to our culture. But, oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that are 
uh, are soft and pliable in your hand, like clay for the potter. We pray that you would mold us and shape us, make us into the image of Christ. We pray that you would cause us to share in your holiness, uh, and that passing us through the fires, you would cause us to be tried and tested because of your work in us. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would do this. We pray that you would keep our eyes always looking to Christ, who was the Son who was disciplined by the Father, uh, who learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And so thank you for his obedience on our behalf, and thank you for the example that he has set, the Holy Spirit whom you have given to allow us to follow him and to make us your faithful children. O oh Lord, build us up and keep us, we pray in Jesus' name.